We're in the bad outcome business. A lot of docs don't know this, but 30% of aortic dissections will present with no chest pain whatsoever. This is coming. Deal with it. That's what my lawyer said once. Trust me. Let's say I screw up. If you're not happy, we're not. We are at the Quai Marriott, room 2424. It's February 28th. We're overlooking the beautiful Pacific Ocean here at the Emergency Medical Abstracts course, where we just so happen to be the three of us are participating in this course. How did this happen? We thought we would take this opportunity to do an issue of risk management monthly. The topics this month are a little bit more thorough look at depth about this issue of apology and disclosure. Those kinds of things are getting to be more and more play. We have an article that is serving as the basis of this review. It's from the Archives of Internal Medicine in August 9th and 23rd issue of 2004. That's an article that's a couple years old. However, it does do a nice job of summarizing it. It's entitled Communication with Patients About Medical Errors, a review of the literature. And then Gregory here has written a chapter for this course on apology and disclosure. So well, that's he, only because I apologize so much for the practice that so I do. Yes, I'm very good at it. The local yeah. expert. Right? Which chapter, which course, which textbook, what? Well, no, we're talking about this, the emergency medicine course. abstracts yeah. course. Oh, apology at this course. I didn't yes. think we apologize for anything at this no, course. No, we have a half-hour presentation by His Honor here regarding oh. apology and disclosure. Do yeah. I have to get up early? And no, go I'll thank listen. you next time to show up. Well, go ahead now. Excuse me. His native knowledge plus the chapter he wrote plus this paper to talk about these right. natty errors here. I got it. I got it. Well, let's do this thing. It's a little distracting, though, being here in Hawaii, overlooking the ocean, seeing the beautiful women by the pool. I mean, Rick, you're killing me. Well, you know, Greg normally flies to Los Angeles kind of thing, and we do it at the house, and we give him an In-N-Out burger, make him happy kind of thing. It takes a lot more. The stakes are a lot higher here to get him happy to be doing a tape uh, over here. But anyway, Mel, help us out here. Greg, we're going to be talking about error, and I don't understand many things. And here's one of the things I don't understand. What is error in the context of medical practice? And... Is it agreed by most people in most circumstances that we have a duty to disclose when error has occurred? What about if I do something and there's not even harm to the patient? Let's say I put in a central line and with my finder needle, I hit the carotid and I go, holy crap. And I pull it out and I just sort of put a little pressure there for a little while. That's an error. Do I have to disclose everything? What is going on here? No, technically that is not an error. What's happened there is a known complication of the procedure. It is still wise to inform the patient at that moment in time that you've had a known complication of the procedure and something we're going to have to observe. But error is quite different. Error is when you're talking about, and really there's been some recent literature on this, we are now starting to talk to each other with a similar set of language. An error is not when something goes wrong. It's when something is done which falls outside the usual and customary modes of medicine, those things which we would usually and customarily do. That is what we talk about as error. What you've talked about is really a known complication of a procedure, and they're really quite different things. Now, all errors don't result in harm. If, for example, I ordered 500 milligrams or 600 milligrams of ibuprofen for you, and they gave double that amount, now that's probably would fall under the rubric of an error 
and you can inform the patient they got a little more medicine they should have. Is there a known complication of that? Probably not. Are they going to have any problem with that? No. But reporting to the patient that something has gone wrong is your obligation. Letting them know that there's a difficulty, that's your obligation. It is independent of whether there's an actual harm that's taken place. There's a couple of issues here. One of them is the physicians and the hospitals and the nurses' point of view of this. Then there is the issue of what the patient and their families think about this error reporting. The literature tells us that they think that this is cool. Any experience in this area? I think all of us have that, that in general, when you're dealing with a patient, if you walk in and you're honest and say, we did this, we did that, there may be a little problem here, they're usually pretty happy that you've communicated with them. And I think in general, all the literature, if you go from paper one to the last paper, the most recent papers published on this, patients in general are happy to know that something went wrong, and they're very happy to know that you've actually shared this with them. Every study says the same thing. If something went wrong and you tried to hide it or tried to bury it, should they find out, then they have a different emotion. That's called vengeance. And I think the physician has to be afraid of vengeance because in this society, there's only one way we carry out vengeance. That's with an attorney. But I'm a little confused. I'm a little worried. There seems to me to be a difference between errors and total screw-ups. And this is where I think many of the people I talk to get worried about. Sticking a needle into the carotid happens. But if I just start disclosing all of these things, I don't know when to finish. I don't know when to end. I'm still not clear when an error is an error and where an error is something I really need to disclose. So I do an LP. I miss it the first time. Well, in theory, that's an error. No, in theory, that isn't an error because an error would be everyone or the vast majority of people would on the first stick get it. That's not the case. And moving from one side to the other, not immediately finding the cerebrospinal fluid is the usual and customary part of doing an LP. And it probably depends on the age and physiology of the patient. But any physician sitting around this table who hasn't had a 400-pound patient who had trouble getting the CSF, I just don't think you've done enough spinal taps in your life. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about deviation from the usual and customary actions what a physician would take. If you've ordered a gram of a medicine and the nurse gives 10 grams of that medicine, that is an error. That is a deviation from usual and customary activity. You know, one of the things that our hospital does now that you bring it up, particularly regarding pharmaceutical errors, is they grade these errors concerning the potential for any consequences. By far, the vast majority of these are of no consequence. You gave too much of a dose or Mr. So-and-so got the medicine that Mr. Jones should have gotten, but it's still of no medical consequence. Actually, I don't know the position a hospital takes regarding the reporting of those errors. I think we were formerly with Catholic Healthcare West, and I think they have a rather aggressive policy on reporting of errors like that, even though there's no harm. The one thing about reporting errors of which there's no harm, there are no downside consequences. I mean, What are they going to sue for? In medical legal actions in the United States, you do have to sue for something. They are monetary damages. You have to sue for a loss. No harm, no foul. And I think that a doctor worries too much about these very small problems. What you ought to be more concerned about is when you went in to take off the right leg and you took off the left. 
And then you have to go back and take off the proper leg, and then you have no leg to stand on. <laughs> no, they don't have a leg to stand on, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah. How come we never have a drummer when we need one? Right. Yeah, Greg, it seems to me that studies seem to indicate that patients have a lower threshold for uh, sanctioning physicians and asking for lawsuits when errors have occurred. It seems to me that what we're worried about is the more we disclose our errors, at some point the patients are going to say, okay, now I need to sue you. Whereas no, I, they wouldn't have before if we had have not hidden the information, but just not disclosed the information. Well, I spent a lot of my career defending doctors, and I don't want to spend my time on this tape defending the legal system. But in general, patients without a harm are not terribly interested in suing, and lawyers in general want something they can sue for. It's the kind of case that no one wants to take. Now, you're very right about the fact that in all of these studies, doctors agree with patients that patients ought to be informed when something's gone wrong. Where they don't agree is on what ought to happen. Patients are immediately vindictive and think if something wrong has happened, the license should be pulled. Physicians believe that at a very, very low level. Patients believe it at almost the 70% level. And when you look at certain professions where the outcomes are intrinsically good, i.e. most pediatric visits, do not have a bad outcome. Now look at neurosurgery. By definition, when you really need a neurosurgeon, the chances of a bad outcome are really good. And that's where doctors are afraid that we will mix up bad outcome with a variance or a violation which has caused harm. And that's the frightening part of this. Yeah, it has been a little discouraging to read the studies of what patients and their families think ought to be done with doctors in the setting of at least theoretical errors in the presented cases in terms of there's a fair amount of repetitiveness with regards to sanctioning of doctors, public flogging of doctors. I prefer spanking, but that's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. And that makes people concerned that they may have a lower threshold for wanting to get back than we're willing to concede. Greg, in your research, if you could distill for us, what do you think are the elements of a disclosure process? Most of the patients, when they were asked, what should it consist of? We're pretty much on the same track, and that is they want to know now. That is, they want it somewhere related in time. They don't want you informing them next year about a problem that took place this year. So it ought to be temporally related to the event, something that they can know about. It ought to be presented in a language that they can understand. To say to a patient gobbledygook in medicine is to tell them nothing at all. They have no way of relating that and what ought to be happening. It ought to be presented as to what we did, what should have been done, and then what are the likely problems, what do we need to do about it, and what have we done about it? Have we taken an action to do something about it? For example, putting in the central line that you spoke about, right. uh, if you do drop the lung, I think you pretty much have to talk to the patient about the fact that they now also need something called a chest tube. And it's very hard to avoid carrying on that conversation in a timely manner, particularly as their respiratory rate goes up. One of the recurring themes that you hear people talk about is, I want to know what the hospital has done so this doesn't happen to the next person. Well, I think that's fair. What they want to know is they are so upset that something has gone wrong, they want to make sure that no one else is the victim 
of this kind of problem, that no one else is going to have to suffer as they did, and no one else is going to have something like this come up. All of that, I think, is perfectly fair, that if you let them know what we're doing so this doesn't happen again, I think that's perfectly reasonable. One of the things also that you see a lot about is they want the opportunity to have questions addressed, and they need to be given that opportunity And even if that to be facilitated, I think clearly one of the things that you were talking about is language they can understand. And one of my questions is, who should be there? Because the hospitals kind of make a really kind of formal process of this thing. I think you've asked a key question. Whenever you need to meet with a family in the offices of risk management, you've sent a message which is not good. In emergency medicine, we have a lot of bad outcomes. We're in the bad outcome business. In most places in the country, when things are going badly, where do we take them? To the emergency department. We have people die. And you have to set it up so if the family has questions, they have a place where they can go to get answers. That doesn't have to be risk management. Usually early on, they're just probing. They're just asking questions. They want to know, is someone else in the family going to get this disease? Well, I'm less concerned about that than the formal process by which hospitals have adopted for the disclosure of where they bring in the risk manager, the nursing manager for the service, and all of the people who are involved, and they make an appointment, and you come there with your minister, and this, that, and the other thing, and it's really quite formal. And a lot of that is quite overblown. The key to speaking to the patients, and there's a very interesting article this month It's in the March issue of the Journal of Ashrams, the American Society of Hospital Risk Managers. And basically what it said was this, no one should be talking to the patient about error and giving the apology who hasn't been trained in doing this. There are ways to say things, ways to put things, and the ways to respond to their questions that make them feel satisfied as opposed to unsatisfied. And it doesn't have to be a cadre, a cast of thousands showing up. One physician who is properly trained and knows how to empathize and deal with the patient is perfectly capable of giving an apology. The key is this, and I think this article is a fantastic article. And what it really says is what the patient wants is accurate information and what they want is an apology that is sincere. If they sense insincerity, it was the conclusion of this author that it's worse than no apology at all. It's worse than never speaking to the patient if you come off as arrogant or belligerent or, well, what do you expect? This is what happens in medicine. You know what? The person who does that presentation ought to be experienced in speaking to patients. You know, the American Medical Association, I think, is on record as saying that disclosure is one of the ethical responsibilities of physicians, and many of the hospital organizations have similarly agreed. The problem I see it is is that the law and our lawyers and our malpractice insurance companies basically work under a different set of rules, and they basically tell you, discuss this with nobody, Should I have my attorney there while this is going on? It makes me nervous. I think the big question is, once a legal process is started, once a summons and complaint... No, no, this is before that. This is, you know, the hospital wants to have a formal disclosure of an error. Right, but I think a formal disclosure of an error does not mean that the cast of thousands needs to appear. Someone who knows what they're doing needs to speak to the patient. I'll tell you what we're doing now is the emergency director of the department may need to speak to the family. Why is that better than the doctor who was involved in the case? Because there may be so many emotional 
factors involved in that doctor to sit with the patient and carry on that discussion may be exceedingly traumatic. And yet the director of the department can, on an objective basis, carry on a discussion as to what happened, what may have happened, what we're going to do about it. And I think he's in a much better position to carry on an objective disclosure. Disclosure is the key word here. An objective disclosure with the patient and the family. Well, let me paint you a little bit more into a corner. What about acknowledging that you are responsible for the harm that occurred? Well, I think that at some point in time, you can't escape the truth in certain cases. Now, most of our doctors aren't stupid. Most of them didn't pronounce live people. Most of them didn't order someone executed. There are multiple factors involved. But when there is indeed something gone wrong, and let's just take a case that actually happened at a well-known university, where in the ICU, in flushing the catheter on an infant, they used a syringe of alcohol instead of saline, resulting in the infant's death. The lawyers refer to that as res ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. You know, at some point in time, you need to sit down, talk with the family about this, and end the misery. You know, we do occasionally do something called malpractice, and I think that you cannot always get away from that fact that things happen which were not intended and clearly were an error. Well, if that happens, what would your malpractice carrier say? if you basically preempted them from making any kind of reasonable defense now that you've admitted your guilt? Well, the malpractice carrier can set up certain barriers. What a malpractice carrier functioning in the United States cannot do is say that you cannot participate in reasonable disclosure. After all, the medical society itself, the AMA, is on record as saying that reasonable disclosure, honest disclosure, is a physician's ethical obligation. How could they in good conscience say that being part of this disclosure process is adequate to negate your insurance coverage? I don't think they can do that. But the analogy is very similar to car accidents, and I think Rick brought it up before. If you're in a car accident and you feel like you've kind of screwed up, you want to get out of the car and you want to say, look, my bad, I screwed up. But your car insurance definitely says don't say that you screwed up and we're doing the same thing and i think this is probably true in other legal situations we have to be very careful about saying it was my fault rather than saying i'm sorry well is there a difference there in all fairness we can hypothesize anything we want i practiced for 33 years i've dealt with lots of insurance companies i've been president of two medical malpractice insurance companies i've never yet seen the case where an emergency physician lost his insurance coverage based on the fact that there was any type of discussion held with the patient. Before we move on, let me hit up one other point. Would you think it's reasonable to call your carrier and say, our hospital is planning on having a disclosure of an error that I was involved in. What do you recommend? I think it's perfectly fine to put the carrier on notice If they would like to participate in some way with the hospital, that's fine. The one thing the carrier can't do is say that the hospital cannot participate in ethically mandated disclosure of error. But that's the hospital. This carrier represents you, 
and they can say, this is what we would recommend that you do in this situation. In terms I, of what the physician should do, not right. the hospital. I'll just say that I have not seen the case yet where a physician was told not to cooperate with a disclosure process by their insurance carrier. I've not seen the case. Now, it may be out there. I mean, I'd be interested if one of our listeners has ever had that happen, but I personally have never seen it. I got to believe that this is going to result in some clash at some time because this movement of disclosure, it's happening in all of the hospitals, and there is a fundamental conflict here. Yep. There is a fundamental conflict, but understand who eventually pays for that is not the insurance company, it's the insureds. Insurance companies do not take risk, they spread risk. And if by this sort of action, the losses go up, the rates go up. What Rick is saying is so profound, and I'm not sure what we can do with it clinically, but what he's saying is profound because what we want in a society is truth-telling, and this is truth-telling. I screwed up, here's what happened, my bad, I'm sorry. But what we have heard from lawyers in a variety of situations for so long is, shut the hell up, because I can get you off, because I can do things to... And the word is not twist the truth, but I can present things in such a way that... Mitigate it. Yeah, and that's not how society really wants things to be, but we are in a legal society, particularly in the U.S., and that's the way the lawyers want it to be. There seems to be a direct sort of confrontation there. What we should do is just say, I did this, I'm sorry, my bad. We would only do that in a relationship where you're not going to lean over and punch me in the eye. This is an adversarial relationship, while in New Zealand somebody gets harmed as a result of error, whatever. It doesn't have to be an error. There's a problem and you puncture the carotid artery or the lung and now there's another problem, another problem, another problem kind of thing. There's compensation where you don't have to destroy the physician in the process. Our adversarial system is what's kind of unique to the situation, which makes it uncomfortable because we're not quite sure how much to divulge. Well, certainly there's no obligation to have to go running immediately into a patient's room after something terrible has happened and do a mea copa, mea maxima copa, prostrate oneself on the floor. <laughs> giving your older boy a Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. But you don't have to do this immediately. There is time to speak with hospital personnel to plan out what's going to be done. But in the long run, I honestly believe that honesty is probably... The, the best, best policy. policy. Who did say that? Yes. <laughs> was that the guy who trapped down a cherry tree or something? Uh, yeah, I think that was the guy. But isn't there some more elements to this disclosure? There's some elements that I want to talk about. And that is one of these elements that you're supposed to do when you're disclosing is to say that the family will not incur financial liabilities for the error. Let's say I screw up. And let's say the screw up results in the patient having to go to the ICU. And let's say they go to the ICU for a week, and let's say that ICU bill is $200,000. Are you saying that hospitals and insurance carriers are going to say, no problem, that was our fault, you don't have to pay for that? Let me say that that was put in because our article, the one I reviewed, said that that should be one of the elements of this conversation, that we're not going to burden you with additional expenses as a result of our error. Now, Greg specifically did not address that point. And uh, do you think that that is some assurance, or even, because I do this all the time, I drop people's bills. Drop people's bills all the time. Um, <clears throat> and so do hospitals. Hospitals do this all the time. They do it in conjunction with us all the time. dropping a bill is paramount to saying, I'm sorry, I screwed up, and I'm guilty. Absolutely You're not. You're a fool if you don't drop these bills. That's not the approach we take. And what we say is, 
We want you to be happy with right. our service. Exactly. If you are not happy with our service, we don't want you to pay for it. The great restaurants in New York, if you don't like dinner, they'll bring you something else. They'll do whatever you want. They'll buy you dessert. If you're not happy, we're not happy. This is a revelation, though, because this is not the message that you get from the vast majority of ED directors and other people. You always get a bill. They're subscribing to this. You always get a bill. If we screw up and put you in the ICU, you get a bill. If you come back the next day because we missed your MI, you get a bill. You always get a bill. You know what? We have the ability to speak to administration and talk to them about various Mm -hmm. things. Now, again, if it's a known complication of the procedure, Yeah, they're going to get a bill because, you know what, nothing we do is risk-free. The concept of first do no harm would actually, you could carry that to the extreme, you'd do nothing on anybody. Every time we do something real, there is a potential harm. But you know what, I've never seen a hospital administrator when I went to them and said, I think we're partially involved in this who didn't immediately say we will take care of it and i've never seen an insurance carrier who pushed the point i've never had an insurance carrier say we won't pay for the chest tube even though you drop the lung how many patients who present to a emergency is there data on this there is a number in my head and i think it's probably wrong who present to hospitals maybe it's not emergency departments have a significant error is that number something like 14 percent According to the big study that was done? No, that's the Institute of Medicine study. Yeah. You're quoting the Institute of Medicine study, which, if you actually look at that data, nobody, by the way, nobody in medicine believes that number. Because if you actually believe that number, you might as well put your head on a block and let us chop it off. It's certainly not like that. I think maybe 14% of people or 10% of people, there may be the wrong dose of aspirin or Tylenol or something given out after their two-week stay in the hospital. But if you're actually talking about consequential kinds of errors, I think it's much, much smaller than that. The Institute of Medicine went way overboard on that issue. They failed to take into consideration when they looked at the deaths and all the people that were killing the fact that these people fundamentally had diseases that were associated with death as well, and they never adequately took into consideration the underlying mortality associated with those diseases in the hospital setting. There exactly. Was, there was a study that looked at errors in emergency departments, and I think it was done in Massachusetts, and I'm trying to remember the hospital, big-time hospital, and they looked at some period of time and looked at errors. And it really depends on what side of the fence you're standing on. If you're a big believer that we're making mistakes right and left, then the number is large. But I actually looked at that paper. We put it in the abstracts. And I looked at specifically the errors they were talking about. And the consequential errors were small considering the denominator of services. Minuscule. Minuscule. All right, Greg. Well, surveys of physicians indicate that they've got real concerns about this. The people you talk to, the surveys that are done say that they're really worried about this process. So here are some of the things they're worried about. Some physician focus groups have indicated they would choose their words very carefully and avoid explicitly stating that they made an error. What do you think about that? So physicians are saying, I don't want to say I did something wrong. The term error is going out in medicine and in risk management. No one is using the the word. What? (laughs) Oopsie. What's that? (laughs) That's right. It's a boo-boo. Yeah, it's a boo-boo. That's exactly right. But untoward event. There are other things. you mean an error, doctor? (laughs) (laughs) Secondly, I think you should always pick your words carefully, particularly if you're talking about someone else as opposed to yourself. It is no ER doc has ever practiced who has not had someone come in to say, by the way, doctor, shouldn't they have diagnosed this yesterday when I was at hospital X or Y? What you say at that moment 
may actually be the nidus, the beginning of a lawsuit if you're not careful. Whenever they say to me, shouldn't they have... Well, that's going kind of another topic, actually. Well, but it is talking about someone's error. It's about being a Monday morning quarterback, quarterback. when you yeah, don't that's have a different all thing. of the facts. Right. But you know what? It does happen. And believe me, when Dr. Little and I looked at our series of lawsuits, the number of people who were ticked off by what some doc said later on down the road was considerable. Oh, there's no question about that. And sometimes our colleagues... <laughs> Our family physicians, we practice in this goldfish bowl where everybody gets to see our errors, and we often get to see theirs, but I've just seen lots of cases where family physicians have taken the opportunity for a cheap shot. Yeah, exactly. Everything I do is typed up in five copies and mailed out the next day. <laughs> Don't worry. We are just as happy to do the cheap shots as them. Medicine is all about taking a cheap shot because we're so insecure, we have to feel good about ourselves by putting somebody else down. We all do it. Don't just blame the family physician. But i got another question. On this same line, the physicians in these surveys are really concerned that an apology is going to be viewed as an expression of legal liability. Is that what we're saying when we say sorry? Saying I'm sorry is not the same as saying I'm guilty. I'm sorry your mother died. That's not saying, geez, I killed your mother. It's a totally different No, but you're activity. not saying I'm sorry your mama died. I'm sorry your mama died when I put the chest tube on the wrong side. Well, I think Should that a lot... Should you sue me for that? That's the question. I think a lot of states have taken the intelligent view, and there are 29 who have something called an I'm sorry law. The I'm sorry law... And everybody should know whether their state has one or not. Mine, Michigan, does not. But the intelligent I'm sorry law says discussion about a deviation from the standard, which resulted in harm. A physician goes and apologizes in some way. That cannot be presented in court. It's what they call non-admissible. Now, it is in most states discoverable. That means the plaintiff can know about it, but it is not admissible at a time of trial. And I think that's an intelligent way to go. I think the legal system should make every effort to encourage physicians to be upfront and to honestly talk to the patients. Well, let's wrap this up. I think that there is a growing literature on this topic. However, it's really true that there is very little empiric evidence to guide this process. As a matter of fact, one of the first papers we ever did about this was in the VA where the VA developed a full disclosure policy. And they were, one of the VA hospitals did it as kind of an experiment. And one of the conclusions was, we got a lot more lawsuits when we started full disclosure, but the total dollars spent was less. And so basically extrapolated this to the entire VA. Now the entire VA has this full disclosure policy. Now the fact of the matter is, is that the net dollar costs were less on full disclosure. However, whether you can extrapolate that to a non-governmental setting where you're not allowed to sue the government in the first place right. kind of thing is a very dangerous and probably inappropriate extrapolation. Yeah, it's absolutely inappropriate because the feds are covered by the Federal Tort Claims Act, which the feds aren't like the states. The feds have said, you can sue us if we give you permission to sue us. And so they really can limit and they can control the flow in and out. I would not take VA data and believe that you can extrapolate that without considerable (laughs) harm to the rest of the medical liability system. And I've seen no literature that basically says in the secular system, 
what has been the results of full disclosure policies with regards to payouts, claims, those yeah. kinds of things. Isn't this a concern that, um, see, I'm so torn here because I believe this is the right thing. I believe this isn't the way we should have normal human relations is to tell people what went on. But the concern of everybody that's ever thought about this and talked about this is that this is going to make much more malpractice. If I told you every time I screwed up, then I'm going to get sued a lot more often. I think it's just too early to know. Yeah, it is too early to know. The other thing is some things are a trend which is happening, which no matter how much you believe that science and technology and literature is required, some of these things happen in the society. This is one of those trends. That trend is moving. That tsunami is coming. And we have to be prepared to deal with it. And to think you can just counter that by thinking there's a series of academic articles out there, you're not going to be able to handle it that way. So you're basically saying that this is coming, deal with it, do it appropriately, because you're not going to be able to stop this tidal wave that's coming. Let me make a suggestion to emergency docs. We're in a different position than the inpatient service. If there is a problem, you need to have people in the department trained to speak to the patients. You need to be able to make time for them to come in or the family to come in to talk to them. You need to have sat down with your carrier in advance and talk about what you're going to do and about the ethical obligations which are involved. There are certainly doctors who work with me I would not want talking to the patients. (laughs) Just by their intensity and their arrogance, they'd blow them over, and that would cause a lawsuit right there. I think you really do have to have people who have some sensitivity training on this issue to carry on these discussions. Well, the fact of the matter is is that none of us have any training in this, but some people are intrinsically better at it than others. Others. And maybe you should make a course. Next year in Kauai, we're going to have a how how to apologize course, 20 CMEs kind of thing. Yeah, it's going to be very short, by the way. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the wiring of the individual. Our hospital has a really, really nice lady who give you a cup of tea, and she'll do it really very nicely, and you're right. There are other doctors, a bull in a china shop kind of thing. You need your grandma to come and say, look, the doctor kind of screwed up, and they didn't mean it, and you'll be fine. We need grandma disclosure. Right. Okay, guys, let's get on to some letters before we do our next major topic. All right, the first letter then we have is from David Essler, who's from Vancouver. And this is his second letter, and we're going to have to start charging this guy. I mean, I you, can't, so. you can't be doing that many letters. No. His first question relates to testing, selective versus doing a workup with comprehensive testing of all the systems. So let's give our two cents. And I remember this, actually. We said, you got somebody comes in, looks like a minor complaint, and should you do everything on all of these people? I think this is what he was getting it's at. Called versus, a workup. Versus just targeted stuff. When do you know what to do what on these people with vague complaints in particular? Well, isn't that what you're paid to do as a physician, to try to ascertain what is wrong, what is appropriate? I do see, honestly, colleagues who are doing EKGs on patients with back pain. It's like they're elderly, yes, and there may be some underlying heart disease, but it's not the reason that they're there today. And I really have a problem with it because those doctors run up these big bills. If you're getting paid by RVUs, you get a little bonus for your behavior. And it's even getting easier now, now that you have this physician computer order entry, you can just push that one button and blow out a workup for chest pain. In fact, at the course today, there was somebody talking about these chest pain workups on 18-year-olds because the nurse pushed the button in triage. So the doctor gets to see you with this handful of uh, results. We so want to get away from this. Residents ask it all the time, and I ask myself it all the time. Can't you just tell me exactly what to do? I just want to know exactly what to do. But in the end, it's the art. 
This is the art of medicine. You cannot hone it down to more than the fact that you just have to go with your gut sometimes. The other thing is, in emergency medicine, we're going to ask a series of questions. Why did you present tonight or today? What is the problem we can deal with? One of my partners, Neil Little, once said, deal with all issues, but not necessarily in the emergency department. It's perfectly fine to say, yes, your blood pressure, which is being worked on, is such and such today. It is still slightly elevated. You'll have to see your doctor about it. Or the fact that your urine stream is slower or something like that. We're not going to do a prostate study on you tonight, but this is how it ought to be handled. I think that human complaints ought to be dealt with, but they ought to be dealt with in the appropriate setting. Although I think what this doctor is referring to is this check-all system's of an elderly person, grandma is not acting herself. There's no tachycardia, there's no fever, there's no evidence of any clinical signs of a urine infection, but off to the lab goes a micro UA and culture kind of thing, because you never know. I see that all the time. I see doctors who are testers, who order lots and lots of tests. I wonder, how is this related to the reason that the people are there? And they think that's called good medicine, and I think really it's not good medicine. Mel, I think you're 100% right. I think it's about experience and not being too risk averse. I mean, if you're afraid of every patient because they're going to sue you, well, then you're going to be doing all of this kinds of stuff. There are superior doctors and there are ordinary doctors and they're not so good doctors. Let's face it. And so I think that there's no easy answer to this question. Well, the answer has to do to some extent with your own comfort level with taking on risk when you see the patients. This is how you're going to handle this problem. And it is an experience comfort level. You're going to have doctors who have 20, 30 years experience, but are shaking on the inside every time they see a patient. You know, that's really interesting because one of the doctors who works part-time at our hospital is full-time faculty at one of the residencies. And this doctor, we have a system in our hospital where we can track utilization of tests by doctors. And this doctor orders, in general, at least twice as many tests as the average other doctor. More electrolytes on kids who vomit once. And this is a very risk-averse doctor working in an academic environment, teaching doctors in training how to become risk-averse ordering machines. And it's very discouraging because physician variability in practice is huge. But when you look at this person, two standard deviations off the bell, it's very disconcerting. And once you order a test on a, I'm glad I really did that CT, I picked up a case of Tutsukamuchi, whatever, whatever, (laughs) you'll keep on ordering it because you're looking for the next one. That's right. You don't practice based on the literature. You practice based on your last worst patient experience. The concept that you're going to be able to have a practice guideline, algorithmic approach to patients really is silly. Even for diseases, we have studied the crap out of it, like PEDVT. So many of these protocols, in the end, have a point system, and the most points are for you thought there was something else going on. And it's not about whether the calf was small or big or three centimeters versus four centimeters, but you said at some point, I think the likelihood of something else is more or less. And that, in the end, is always going to come down to your And by the way, some of this complaint comes from our own colleagues who sit on the emergency medicine committees. I've certainly had people say, a pediatrician say, well, of course they shouldn't have gotten an electrolyte on this case. They should have gotten this or that. Yet when you actually see what their practice is in their own offices... They don't do that sort of thing. I think that we need to kind of put them into a perspective here. What would the reasonable doctor do under those circumstances? And 
to what degree do you feel comfortable with what you're doing at that moment in time? I am not a believer in the huge workup. The problem in this country is, in the U.S. at this time, is so many other people have abrogated their responsibilities to see patients. Internists don't take patients after 4 o'clock in the afternoon anymore. The family practitioners aren't available at night. All these people who know the patient, who know whether their mental status has actually changed or not, are not available. And so I think we're doing more, really, primary care kinds of evaluations of patients, which is not what the emergency department was set up to do. One of the things I think is an interesting phenomenon, and we brought it up today at the course, is looking at behavior by hospital. There was a paper that we looked at today that basically showed, I forget the specifics of it, but at one hospital, about 40% of the time they did certain things. And at another ER, 80% of the time they did the same thing kind of thing. So we are creatures of watching our colleagues. Well, this is what Frank does. Maybe that's the way to do it kind of thing. And maybe the nurses will encourage you. Aren't you going to order a proton PTT just because this person's on warfarin kind of thing? So those kinds of behaviors kind of become ingrained in a hospital so that there becomes an environment where this is the way we do it here, which is grossly different from a hospital down the street with other board certified physicians where they do the test half the time that it's done at this hospital. So the bottom line, David, is we don't have a good answer for you. I think the clinical judgment still determines what you're going to do. David was really nice because he gave us an easier question. Yes, he wants to talk about TPA. Now, he understands. Where's David get off having two questions? Uh, Well, Well, we did encourage people to write letters. Okay, all right, yeah. So he's got another series of questions, and he wants to talk about TPA for stroke again. And We did a whole hour or more on this. But he wants some clarification. So he said, we collectively diss the hospital that doesn't seek informed consent for thrombolysis for stroke. It's FDA approved. It's AAN approved. It's AHA approved. But I think he misheard us. I think we all agreed just because something's FDA approved doesn't mean you shouldn't get consent. I think we all agree that if you have an intervention, a drug, thrombolysis for stroke, thrombolysis for MI, that has some serious downsides, like it could kill you, you should get additional consent. It's not covered in the general consent. Let's be straightforward here. I've been involved in TPA litigation where you gave it and where you didn't give it. And on those cases where they gave it and they got sued, it was, I didn't know grandma could bleed into her head and die right away. All she had was a little weakness in one arm. We could have lived with that. I mean, I think candor here is important. And to think that we don't have a responsibility to say something to the patient, I think that's wrong. I think you have to transfer a certain amount of liability and responsibility to the patient. Give them some facts. There's no question that at this table, we are not big TPA people. But in all honesty, some people may want to take that risk. And I think that we at least ought to be able to tell them what the risk is. With TPA, this is not like hanging IV ampicillin. This is a drug where in the best study, the only study that was positive, the best result was one out of every 19 people bled to death in their head. I mean, you have to let people know that sort of thing. Let me ask another question. What other drug do we have in the cabinet that has a one in every 19 patient dying from the giving of that drug, and that's the good result? This is true, but he brings up a very important point in the next part of his letter, and that is, isn't the whole concept of informed consent absolutely bogus? Don't you need a medical degree and a law degree before you can really understand informed consent? How do I tell somebody who's 
dying from an MI. How do I tell somebody who's got a giant stroke? Here are truly the risks and benefits. You need to know number needed to treat. You need to know number needed to harm. You need to understand it within this group of people who bleed in their head. Some will bleed more. Some will bleed less. How do you really give informed consent? His point is... We never really give informed consent for sick people who are coming in. We give them our version of consent, and we spin it in a way that they will do what we want them to do. Yes, but our version is better than nothing. The other thing is, informed consent is absolutely dependent upon what you're doing. If you're doing an elective rhinoplasty, that ought to be given at a time separate when you get to sit down with the patient. And I'll tell you right now, a lot of the plastic surgeons are videotaping their consent sessions. And then they give them time to think about it, time to come back, all that sort of thing. You and I don't have that luxury. It's almost like the buyer's remorse of things. When you buy a house, you've got one day to get out of it kind of thing, these clauses. And you get buyer's remorse if you want to get your breast put in kind of thing. I think I changed my mind. Well, I had a woman two weeks ago who had had a breast reduction, as a matter of fact. And now one breast pussed out and she's got MRSA climbing up that breast into the axilla. She's got a different view of this now. And believe me, the plastic surgeon was not a happy camper. David, I think it's our conclusion that you really, 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 really need to make a reasonable effort at trying to get these compromised patients. Yes, we know they're elderly. Yes, we know they've had a stroke. We know that they don't necessarily comprehend all of this, but you have to make an effort. That is the core of all of this. David has suggested, can't we just take their hand and say, listen, we're going to do the best we can for you? And the answer in this case is no. I don't think you can do that. That's what my lawyer said once. Trust me. Yeah, Yeah, but see, I'm with David because I think what he is saying is true. I think in the end, we have to do all this. We have to document this. And yet, in the end, most of those patients are going to want to take our hand and say, what would you do, doctor? Exactly right. That's okay. And that's perfectly fair. But to say that there is no downside, there is no risk, there's nothing we do that doesn't carry with it a risk. Here's a letter from David Goff of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Right near the house there. The Amish are out there kind of thing. He wanted to know, this is very appropriate, he wanted to know from the greatest minds of emergency medicine. Say what? what? Where were those guys? That's us. He wants us to discuss some issues regarding working with residents. David, I think that this is too big a topic for us to kind of just handle in a letter. We've got a special article on it entitled Medical Errors Involving Trainees that we're going to be covering in an upcoming issue. We got your letter. We think it's too important to give short shrift to. Absolutely. I mean, people have asked me for years, how do you handle residents? And I usually say with a whip and a chair and a gun. (laughs) I think that the resident issue is so large that this has to be a whole issue. But we thank you very much for writing to us about this. And we will get into this big time. Well, Greg, then maybe I have one that's a little bit simpler. This one's from Joe Koshnik, who asks about the ASEP reaffirmation statement and how's it used on a practical basis. So are experts asked to sign it before the deposition or before trial? Can lawyers at trial ask why experts on the other side are unwilling to sign the statement? What is this statement? What is well, this what reaffirmation is it? What thing? is it? Right. What is it? The reaffirmation statement was adopted by the board of ASEP, the American College of Emergency Physicians, And what it basically does is has 10 points which reaffirms ethical considerations in emergency medicine. Anything I say will be grounded in current literature. I will not take fee based on whether they win or lose the case, that sort of thing. And the last point, the 10th point says, and I am willing to have my testimony 
sworn testimony, deposition or trial, reviewed by the Ethics Committee of the American College of Emergency Physicians. I'm telling you right now, there should be no defense attorney who does not understand this, have a copy of this, and know how to use it. Because when that is presented at deposition, pre-trial deposition, you can't believe the number of people in whom it straightens out their act. What you've done is you've put them on record that you will. It's not a threat. It's a promise. You will be sending that deposition, that testimony, to the Ethics Committee for review. ASEP has put this in the last three issues of its magazine, its paper, how to use this, how to get it going. But you know, when that stuff is set in, they look at every one of them. By the way, just as another point, you should never, ever let a deposition of an expert in emergency medicine go on if it's against you, and you don't ask to attend the deposition. Sit there, look the guy in the eye, make sure that he knows he's dealing, he's talking about a person, and that he better be very sure that's correct, because you're going to go back after it. Now, if they refuse to sign that, as far as I'm concerned, the first question at trial is, doctor, why didn't you sign this? You agreed with every point here. You're a member of the college. This is your organization. Why didn't you put your signature on that line? And I think that's the way we have to do it. Well, that was a very specific question that he asked. Can the lawyers ask you, why didn't you sign that? Absolutely, they can. Now, there are judges. There's always some, I will refrain from comment here, but there will be those people who sit on the bench who seem to think that they have a right to reform medicine who will not let that question be asked. It still has nothing to do whether that testimony has been sent in. And you can still send the testimony in, independent, by the way, of the legal action which is going on. If you think that testimony does not comport with the actual standard of care, send it in. People have to pay a price for telling little tales out of court. Okay, and let's do the last letter for this month. It's from Greg Rogers. He sent a three-page single-space letter. He's very concerned about being compelled to be the agent of the state in drawing or being involved with specimens. And he specifically says, can he, a physician, the nurses or hospital phlebotomists working in a community hospital, be compelled to act as the agent of the state to perform a non-consensual blood draw on a patient not requiring medical testing? Yeah, the answer to that is absolutely yes, they can. Right. And there are three Supreme Court decisions which affirm that. Now, certain states, state of Indiana, for example, state police in Indiana have essentially warrant authority. They don't have to go by action of the state legislature. They don't have to go and get a judge to sign a warrant. If they come in and say, I want that blood, they can get it. In a lot of states, you need a court order. But if you have a court order, understand if you do not comply with the court order to draw, you are now in violation of the court order. Even though you're not an agent of the state and you're not the accused. Wait a second. Agent of the state is definitional. You are an agent of the state. The state has decided that every time you diagnose gonorrhea, you have to report it. Every time you have reasonable suspicion of child abuse, if you don't report it in the state of Michigan, you are guilty of a misdemeanor punishable by up by 90 days and suspension of your license. You are intermittently an agent of the state. In fact, we're sitting in Hawaii where you're an agent of the state to the point that you have an obligation 
to draw on anybody involved in an auto accident a blood alcohol, and you are obligated to call the state and report that blood alcohol. Lastly, he says, what if the patient is a minor, and what if the parents refuse consent? Or what if the parents are not available and the minor refuses? First of all, if the minor doesn't want their blood alcohol taken, we're not talking about two- and three-year-olds here. We're talking about older minors. And if they have a warrant signed by a judge, that's a court order. If you're willing to accept the possibility you could be held in contempt of court, by the way, I have a case where the emergency doc was arrested in the department for not drawing the blood and hauled in. And the emergency department, he was the only doc, and the emergency department had to close. You know, when you screw with this, just understand there has to be a system of handling this. Holy testicle Tuesdays. Can you imagine being dragged out of your Actually, I saw a picture of the doctor (laughs) in the police car. Yes. As he was being hauled off. Yes, exactly. Well, well, I think the the points you made are incredibly important that get used to it. You are an agent of the state under a variety of circumstances. The idea that you're an independent contractor, you ain't independent from Uncle Sam under a variety of circumstances. Well, it's not even Uncle Sam. These aren't federal questions. They're usually state State. questions. But the little Sam, the tiny Sam, the state Sam, (laughs) still has a right to expect you to do things. For example, someone comes in who you believe has a stab wound or a gunshot wound, and you don't report that in the state of Michigan, that is punishable by up to a year. Think about this very hard. You do have obligations which go beyond that little tiny doctor-patient relationship. And the doctor-patient relationship is privileged, but it is not the confessional. So we need to push against this as societies, as ASAP, as AM, whoever, but trying to push against it as an individual under those circumstances, you can get in a lot of trouble. You can get in a lot of trouble. So guys, here's the case. A 54-year-old male is at work, says he's just not feeling well, needs to rest. Can I get a drink of water? He's got a little tightness in the chest, some nausea. They take the person to the hospital, literally, which is across the street from where this person is working, and within two hours, he's dead. I think I know this case. We're from Los Angeles. Yeah. This case is making the LA Times almost weekly. This is the case of John Ritter who was thought to have a myocardial infarction, but in reality had an aortic dissection. And by the way, if they'd known he had an aortic dissection, the moment he walked in, if he's dead in two hours, he's going to be dead, probably. Well, that's basically $14 million was paid by the hospital and eight defendants. There's now the $67 million suit. Wait a second. You're talking about Los Angeles. This is the city where OJ got off. Right. This is the city where anybody who's famous gets away with anything. This is a high-dollar suit because of the projected income of John Ritter. I understand that, but understand also that if somebody walked into my hospital today and I knew they were dissecting their aorta, the chances they're going to be a dead sucker are greater than 90%. Can I ask a quick question? What was the 14 million the family already got? What's that from? Well, you know, maybe they just didn't want to deal with having to fork up 67 million. So this was like 14 million shut up and they didn't shut up? This is hush money. They didn't Didn't want a jury... And by God, a jury in L.A., the same people who let people who shoot people and kill people. And, and who was the guy who just got off, the music producer? who Phil Spector. Phil Spector, who walked out and said, I think I just killed the woman. And we also Get him did off. Uh, Columbo, shot his wife yeah. kind of thing. You know, yeah, yeah, and that yeah, was yeah, uh, exactly. out of that one. 
Hello. Well, nobody's perfect, you know. Uh, you know, you can't compare L.A. to the rest of the country. If you took the country and stood on end and shook it, everything a little loose would fall into Southern California. So let's get into this topic a little okay. bit. There are considered to be three killers, M-I-P-E, aortic dissection, and some would add tension pneumothorax as the four chest killers. we got to make the diagnosis right away. We have a paper entitled Litigation in Non-Aortic Disease, a Tempest in the Malpractice Maelstrom, which is going to be included in the abstracts. It is in the abstracts. It's in the Marsh issue. This is three Yale cardiothoracic surgeons who get asked to review a fair number of these aortic-related cases. They well, talk- th- this is the height of what emergency medicine ought to know, is we got three thoracic surgeons. you got to remember, the only people they ever get involved with, we call them for the cases. Nobody comes to them primarily. And so I think we need to be fair about this. I don't want to sound like I'm on a soapbox about this already, Rick, but you know what? A lot of these people are going to die, and it's not always easy to pick these cases up. Well, people send these cases and say, review this case. Do you think that care was adequate, not adequate, that kind of thing? Right. So they had 33 cases that they reviewed in this paper. 23 of them involved dissection. And they basically concluded that medical care was felt to be suboptimal in 22. They point out that the ratio of ACS, acute coronary syndrome, to uh, dissections, they said is around 1 to 80. I've seen numbers. That's absolutely wrong. I've seen numbers closer. Wait a minute now. I've seen numbers closer to 1 in 90, 1 in 100 maybe. If you look at Kim Eagle's work, you realize there is a registry for aortic dissection in the United States. It's at the University of Michigan. It's run by a doctor by the name of Kim Eagle. If you look at that, the number of dissections in the United States is probably between four and 5,000. The number of MIs is somewhere between 850 and 900,000. You do the math. But my experience is that it's actually closer to this one in 100. Yeah, and but, I think but it totally you, depends on where you work, because if you have oh, a hypertensive inner city population, people are dissecting every other minute. Well, you can say that, but understand where I am. In the last two years, we haven't had an aortic dissection. We've had lots of MIs. The reasonable initial conclusion is he's having an MI. And by the way, this is a famous guy who they had a cardiologist down on immediately. Well, they concluded that about 20% of the cases were atypical that they reviewed. I think that's a very small number, actually. Yeah, right. They said a lot of them had no chest pain. There was no evidence of malperfusion in terms of neurological issues. They also said that the people were kind of chintzy on doing some of the studies that they thought needed to be done. Their recommendations were always consider the diagnosis. Well, you can't fault them for that. Well, Make I, that. I always consider, consider the diagnosis. Well. I always think of the diagnosis of Tutskamushi's disease no, when I've is, got a fever. Greg, this is one of the four killers. Four killers. You've got to always think of the diagnosis. Also, they say, consider the family history. We have a paper that says there's a very high incidence of having aortic disease within the family and that you should consider asking about aortic disease and sudden death. Because some of these... Did that happen in John Ritter's case? I don't know. Family Did history? No, yeah, no. I don't know that. Number three, they say liberal ordering. They say a negative D-dimer will exclude the diagnosis. And in fact, we have two papers that essentially say that is true. That if you have a negative D-dimer, you have excluded the diagnosis. Yeah, but that's BS. That's clearly BS because the D-dimer is going to be positive every other second. Well, we're talking about negative. Yeah, 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 but the point is D-dimers are up in everything. They also say liberal use of the triple rule-out scan. Now, obviously, they're using the perspective of somebody who's reviewing cases of aortic disease. Who are thoracic surgeons. 
So whether in fact we ought to use these triple roulettes, the PE, coronary artery disease, the section scan with a contrast, whether we'll be using those all the time, you won't miss this diagnosis, but then again, we'll be over-radiating a huge number of people. And tying up the department forever. And who would you really implement that testing on as well? You've got John Ritter who presented because he didn't feel well. So everyone who doesn't feel well gets a triple rule-out CT scan of the chest. And, and that day, Dharma. And, and that's the voice of our guest. Our guest is Kevin Clower. Kevin is on the faculty here with our course at Kauai, and we've taken the opportunity to ask Kevin to participate. He's the Director of Quality and Clinical Education for EMP in Canton, Ohio. Their group sees about 1.8 million patients a year. In one department? And Kevin, it's you're a very, your it's a very big department. They've got a, they've got a <laughs> waiting room that would knock your Dang. eyeballs out. That's yeah, right. That's right. yeah, yeah. Door to doctor in 10 minutes. Yeah, right, Jeez. exactly. So Kevin's group does have, unfortunately, some experience with this diagnosis, the atypical presentations of these cases. And Kevin, I'd be curious as to what your group has done to try to decrease this risk. Well, Rick, the first thing we've done is recognize the variability of presentations. A lot of docs don't know this, but 30% of aortic dissections will present with no chest pain whatsoever. And that should be a sobering statistic right there. So when you look at a disease entity that does not have a specific or a very sensitive presenting symptom or complaint, how do you develop a policy or a testing program or guideline to detect this disease entity? Yeah, I can't help but jump in here. If they do not have chest pain, if they don't have chest pain and they don't have something else, give me a break here. Exactly. You know, there's a certain number of people we ain't going to pick up. And you know what? The only people who don't miss something like this are people who don't practice anymore. And the truth is, if you practice and you get somebody who does not have chest pain, who has a normal chest x-ray, you know, picking this thing up is going to be real hard. And you mentioned with John Ritter that he would have been dead anyway, and that's the key with these cases. And the defense in these cases is a proximate cause issue. When they present with a life-threatening illness like this and no one's told them they're already dead, then there's a supervening event called an aortic dissection that you can't intervene with no matter what testing. If you it. look at Kim Eagle's work, if you present hypotensive with an EKG change, you're going to die. Well, let's You're forget, gonna die. forget those cases. We're trying to talk about the cases where you have the opportunity to intervene. And if you don't, there's going to be an issue. And I think one of the things that Kevin's talking about is the atypical presentation. You look in the textbooks, they talk about, well, pulse pressure is being different. That's a highly insensitive test in these cases. Or elevated blood pressure. Well, not everybody who has a, a dissection has an elevated blood Rick, pressure. What I'm saying is there's going to be a patient come in that you're not going to pick up and you're not a bad doctor. It just is, they got to give you something. Give me something. If we shoot the chest x-ray and we're working them up, by the way, again, I presented data which said that it's 500 times more likely to have an MI than a dissection. If you're looking for the MI, which is where you got to go, and you shoot the chest x-ray and the chest x-ray is normal, which it will be in 30% of those cases, you know what? This is a real difficult diagnosis. Are we going to take everybody in the department who's getting a rule out and now fill them full of dye and shoot a study? I don't know. You're getting testier by the minute. Dr. Well, I'd say forget the chest x-ray because if you look at the most sensitive finding on the chest x-ray, that's going to be the wide mediastinum, and that one's only 72% sensitive. 72% sensitive. So exactly. I, best finding. So I want to get back to Kevin, and I want to know, okay, I know from an individual practitioner's point of view, my chance of picking this up, the standard of care, frankly, is to miss it. So from a systems point of view, which is what Kevin does, and he's got 1.8 million visits and he's got 600 doctors, what do you do from a systems point of view to try and protect yourself against 
the fact that you're going to miss it most of the time. This is a challenging thing, Mel, and I tell you, it's in contrast with, let's say, a topic pregnancy, which is very easy. You've got a topic pregnancy, you know there's a leverage point. If you have a childbearing age female with abdominal pain and you do not order the pregnancy test, you will miss that diagnosis. Where is that specific leverage point with the aortic dissection? It's not there. So all we can do is raise awareness with good education and really educate docs about defensive documentation. Rick, you mentioned about abnormal pulses or variable pulses between the upper extremities. It's a horrible finding to base a diagnosis on, but it's great to find in a medical record when someone does have a diagnosis of dissection later and you've documented that it was normal. You thought about it, you investigated it, you thought it wasn't there, you didn't pursue it further. So the person who's reviewing that chart says, here's a doc who was thinking clearly, who was doing the right thing compared to his colleagues, even though we all know that is BS. Right. You want to fill up the record with things that will make it clear to the jury and other doctors that you've carefully considered this diagnosis. We're going to show you all kinds of ways where you're going to get scooped and this diagnosis is going to exist despite the fact that you've talked about the blood pressure, the pulse, the family history, this, that, and the other thing. By the way, it's always lovely when they come in and say, you know, I've got this pain coming up my back. It's sort of ripping. And by the way, I have Marfam's disease. I mean, okay, that one I can buy. The last case I reviewed, by the way, was a 52-year-old man, no history of hypertension, no family history and nothing, who had a few lateral ST segment changes, and in 40 minutes is dead. And you know what? I don't give a crap who's sitting there. I mean, you could have Michael DeBakey on one side and Christian Barnard on the other, and he's a dead sucker. But what Kevin's saying is very different to what you started out saying. So Kevin's saying, I can protect my doctors, I can do the right thing if they do good history and physical things and documentation things. What you were saying was triple rule-out scans and D-dimers and all this other BS. I'm not going to apply those tests to a huge population to pick up the very few people who have the disease. Re population, too, because, again, they don't present with chest pain many times. The educational tools we've given our physicians to really focus on as well is the vascular distributions of the branches of the aortic arch and beyond. So if you have somebody with chest pain and a headache, you've got somebody with a headache and new-onset neurologic symptoms, you have somebody with a pulseless extremity, somebody who has some sort of neurologic complication you should be thinking aortic dissection until proven otherwise, and that's where most physicians don't have it in their differential diagnosis. I couldn't agree with that more, but now you don't have just a general, I don't feel well. You've got somebody who's going, and that's not just Rick we're talking about. We're, we're, we're talking about somebody else here. Now they've got a neurologic finding and the chest pain. Okay, we'll buy that one. But I think we have to understand the fact that when you're seeing a lot of people, by the way, in this case, you realize the emergency doctor in this case, this is a famous man who's come into their emergency department. The cardiologist was in the emergency. It wasn't a guy on the phone. The cardiologist came in and saw him. You know what? That's a fairly high standard of care here we're talking well, about. That's, but that's what we use in this case. This is the best case scenario. You start dissecting at NBC Studios. You get driven across the street. You're John Ritter. You get seen by everybody. Everybody's got their finger on this guy, and it still doesn't turn out well. That's not going to be the standard by the of care way, for most people. Being a famous guy does not help you. You realize when President Reagan was shot in Washington, the chief of surgery came down and his hand was shaking so badly, it was the resident who put in the chest tube that saved his life. 
So I always to talk about this was the chest pain and syndrome. I used to do the board review course. Chest pain and neurological findings, chest pain and belly pain, chest pain and loss of pulse. And then Kevin comes along and says, well, chest pain isn't that really common anyway. Bastard. Well, again, standard we, of care is to whenever me. they talk about <laughs> the typical presentation, I always mention in court, because I go on a lot of these cases, a lot of these become litigation cases. And I point out the typical presentation is atypical. Well, certainly the typical presentation of miscases is atypical. <laughs> what are the other disease entities we're considering? Rick already mentioned them as well. And what are the treatment options? Are they along the same lines? Let's say it's PE and it's acute coronary syndrome. And they start to decompensate and we give lytics. Nobody's hurt. But if you make a treatment decision to go acute coronary syndrome and it's aortic dissection, you have sealed the fate for sure, even if it wasn't already. And that's where you run into an issue with standard of care issues with malpractice defense. When it comes out that it ultimately was a dissection and you delivered lytics, it was a problem. We've had two cases at least that I know of that way. Well, and lytics aren't the treatment for aortic dissection? Not no, unless no. you want to clear that better in a hurry. <laughs> How can we summarize this? Greg, we can't take your position that all of these cases, they're inevitable, that we're going to miss these. That no, but I think what you have to do is use some sense of judgment. If someone comes in with atypical chest pain and it's back pain, and now they have a neurologic finding, if you have somebody who you're not getting the obvious answer on, if you've got somebody, and by the way, 72% of them do have an abnormal chest X-ray. I think that's important. If you come back with somebody who has a large mediastinum on the 100 centimeter focal length portable film, I think you got to talk about that. That's important to talk about. But I don't think we can do is beat everybody to death on the atypical presentation. I think physicians need to be aware of the they need to be how aware of it. Frequently, the presentations are atypical. How <laughs> common the neurologic signs are associated with it. And the real problem is the number of times that it becomes a lawsuit. Compared to other diseases, the number of dissections which become a lawsuit is huge only because there ain't that many of them, but they all end the same way. But does it You're go dead. The, the other way as well? Because see, here's a paper from Hansen. It's the American Journal of Cardiology in March 15, 2007. 40% of these people didn't have an elevated blood pressure. 11% had elevated troponins. 15% had ST segment depression. 75% of them, they said there was an abnormal chest x-ray, but that's bogus because it's retrospective. This is a retrospective study. Does it go the other way? Do I get in trouble for delaying the care of an MI patient because now you've made me so freaking freaked out about this disease that I send them up to get a CT scan and delay the care not, of an MI patient. Probably not. not. Documentation. Right. If you document why you had a reasonable delay, you are fine. I'm worried about this and I cannot do this because I must know the answer to this question before I can move forward with acute coronary syndrome. And then you're fine. And so I document the, that. I say, this person looks like that. they're having an MI, but I'm concerned enough to do a CT first. I'm going to have to delay their it's care for 45 minutes. And probably the treatment of MIs is such that it doesn't interfere with working up an aortic dissection. Most of the things we do with chest pain patients are expectant. We're getting things like troponins and we're getting EKGs and that sort of thing. By the way, when someone comes into your department with an aortic dissection who has an EKG change, they back dissect it into their valve. And their mortality is obviously much Yeah, but, the, uh, much but what I'm terrible. saying is this is the yeah. opposite. So I've got the inferior MI because they usually pick up a right coronary, for example. Right. And I think it's an, an inferior MI and I could give them the thrombolytics right now, but I say, no, no. 
It could be a dissection. You've got a hypertension history and there's a little back pain. So I delay your care for 45 minutes getting the CT when I could have thrombolized you now. And Kevin's saying, as long as I document that well, why I'm delaying their care to get this other study, I should be okay. You should be okay, absolutely. I think the key is, again, raising awareness with this diagnosis and its nuances. I always believe that the eye does not see what the mind does not know. And if people are not aware of these atypical presentations, they will never consider it. They'll know the patient is sick, but they won't know why. That's right. When the doc looks at the patient and says, I cannot figure this out, but I know you are one of the sick ones, then get the CT. And when you watch someone come in hypertensive, and now they're hypotensive, this is not a good finding. This is not a good finding. That question ought to be in your mind. But this is where certain of the subtle side things are important. If that chest X-ray, in retrospect, is viewed as having a widened mediastinum, you got problems. Actually, that's one of the issues in the Ritter case is that apparently a chest X-ray never got done. It was requested or something like that, but it never happened. They were moving quite quickly through right. this process, etc., etc. Chest X-ray is absolute horse hockey pucks in this disease because. In retrospect, I can find anything on a chest X-ray. I can't tell you how many times a chest X-ray looks abnormal and it's normal. But had it been grossly abnormal, you know, the diagnosis would have been made. Uh, well, well, we're going to do these portably as well, and then you've got magnification, which also says well, that maybe it's not valuable. Wait a second. There's still decent information on the portable film, what these things ought to look like. The John Ritter case had to do with the fact that they had concluded what he had, and they had a cardiologist involved. And you know what? You see only what you know. What's your phrase again? The eye does not see what the mind does not know. That's right. If your only tool is a hammer, everything looks it's like a nail. nail. That's exactly right. And Although, that's can we sum this up now? Yeah, let me try this. So you're saying I should consider in all chest pain patients I've got that. Whenever I have a sick chest pain patient, I go through that different PE, MI, dissection, bad pneumonia, tension pneumothorax. I'll go through that. I have to realize that the incidence of this is a lot less common than acute coronary syndrome. So if I want to play the odds, it's an MI. It's not a section, but... If I play those odds long enough, you're going to be wrong every now and then. I understand that atypical findings are common. In fact, atypical presentations are classic. So unless I think about it, I'm going to miss it. I need to realize that elevations of troponins and ST segments are also consistent with the diagnosis of dissection. It's beginning to get very hard for me. I've got to have a low threshold for imaging. That's the thing that all sort of concerns me a little bit. But I think the best point is actually Kevin's point, and that is it's all about how you chart. If I can chart in such a manner that says to somebody who's reviewing this chart, when things go badly, that I was thinking and I thought about this diagnosis and I weighed the risks and benefits and I thought about the section and I still missed it, then surely that's going to help me out, right? It's going to help me. Absolutely. I think so too. And do you collectively want to reject the idea of these doctors? And we also have other papers in our database that say this, that a negative D-dimer virtually 100% excludes this diagnosis. I want to reject it because it's a small study, 24 patients. I want no, to no, reject I, I it because this is going to make people think I have to do a D-dimer on every chest pain patient. And now what do I do with all the false positives? Because the problem with D-dimers is the two-thirds of the time where it's a false positive, not a true negative. And that's what scares the crap out of me. I think that this is fluid at this moment in time. If this D-dimer thing holds and future research says that this is, it's certainly a factor to consider, but at this moment in time, I don't think it is the standard of care. Well, I think most people don't know about it. There's a paper that was done in Critical Care Medicine, May 2006, a French retrospective study of 188 cases, 94 with dissection, 94 without. All but one dissection had a latex D-dimer above 400. All but one. 
I tell you, these D-dimers are sounding like magnesium to me. First, we're looking at them for PE. Then we're trying to find them in CSF to look for xanthochromia. Now we've decided they're good for dissection. Well, you've just insulted insulted Dr. Magnesium. You understand that? I love magnesium. Yeah, that's right. I am the conduit of this information. (laughs) I am conduit. If you choose to reject it out of hand... But when the information is stool, it should be flushed. Do not kill the messenger. Exactly. He's the messenger. Do not kill the messenger. And is that the March issue of Risk Management? (laughs) Well, we 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 haven't done wine of the month. Okay. What do we just drink? Let's do that. No, no, we can't can't just drink. (laughs) We have to do wine of the month. We'll make it to the point. I have two wines this month, and I've received criticism. It's interesting. More people call and talk to me about wine of the month and they do what yeah. we talk about yeah, I and i've had one person say we've spent too much time on reds so i have two whites this month and both american wines one is hess 2006 the chardonnay this is a monterey california wine somewhere between 10 and 11 dollars a bottle excellent and my real find is one which is everywhere And it was interesting, wine enthusiasts said this, and I will quote from the magazine. This wine is, all in all, well-crafted, well-balanced, flavorful, and a tremendous bargain. That is Columbia Crest, 2006 Grand Estate Sauvignon Blanc, 10 bucks a bottle. Wow. Let's go to Costco right now. I get Bevmo. (laughs) Bevmo? I have a Bevmo card. All right. Kevin, thanks very much for participating with us. Greg, Mel. Thank you for having us. I flew you all over to (laughs) Hawaii for this course. Thanks for having me. We'll see you all. Bye-bye. Good times.